We are in John chapter 4. This is the eighth message from John chapter 4. Today we're looking at Jesus' self-identification as the Messiah. So we're Jesus people. We believe in Jesus. And uh, next week we're going to look at the comments of Jesus that he makes concerning finishing the work. And that's how we're going to focus next week is on how Jesus describes that encounter to his disciples who are astonished at what he's done and uh, how he describes his own calling. And it will be, I think, meat for our souls as we wrap this up next week. Now, John chapter 4 begins with that encounter with a woman at the well. Jesus issues the question, give me a drink, and a conversation develops between them. She asks about worship, and she says, you know, our fathers say we're to worship on this mountain, but you Jews are supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And uh, so she expresses a concern about that, and Jesus responds by saying, you Samaritans don't know what you worship. We Jews know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. And then he talks about God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about this mountain. It's not even about Jerusalem. It's about what's going on in the inner man when he comes to God. God is looking for someone who will worship in spirit and in truth. And verse 25 of John chapter 4 then continues this narrative. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, listen up to the summary of this in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So the village became convinced, many of them, that he was the Savior of the world. My father was my greatest teacher, Russell Crosby. I was 12 years old when I sidled up to him having a conversation with two Jehovah's Witnesses, he later explained to me. He was leaning on the car in the driveway and he was talking to them in a very relaxed way. He talked to them for quite a while. And when he got ready to wrap up the conversation, he said to them, when your religion lets you down, you come back to me, and I'll tell you about Jesus. Well, many years later, I remember my father's words. I remember them vividly. I remember they were his parting words to these two men who came by to talk to us. And from that moment forward, 
I have always believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we are to take the conversation to Jesus as best we can, any way we can, whenever we can, because Jesus is the one people need to hear about. All right? And so there's power in the name of Jesus. There's great uh, wisdom in the name of Jesus. There is love and kindness in the name of Jesus. And no matter what the world says about the name being divisive, or about it being uh, uh, dishonoring to those of other religions. When you use the name of Jesus appropriately in any setting, it introduces love and power into the conversation. All right? Now, Jesus self-identifies. I am the Messiah. That's what he says to her. She starts talking about the Messiah by saying, when the Messiah comes... He will explain everything. He will explain everything to us. You want an explanation for everything. You want it down deep in your heart. Every human does. We want to know why a universe, why a world. A famous Chinese proverb, why is there something instead of nothing? Reported as the most basic question a human can ask. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why everything? Why is everything out there? And she believes that when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. You want this explanation of everything. Where it came from. Why it's here. Where we're going. Because you want it personally. You want purpose and meaning in your life. You want your life to mean something. Beyond just getting up in the morning, going to work, going through the routine, you want a purpose. Not just for the whole universe, but for you as well. And every human heart longs for that. We long for peace. We long for meaning. And we long for purpose in our lives. And the explanation of everything is an explanation for why I'm here. Why I was created what I'm supposed to do here, and what happens to me afterward. That's the explanation for everything. Now, there is a book out entitled The Theory of Everything. You can go buy it at your local bookstore. It's by the brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking. And he sets forth the origin and fate of the universe in his book. And it is indeed profound, seeks to make scientific truth available to the average person who may not be studied in such a discipline. But once he puts out the theory of everything, the folks who read it say, well, it's not exactly a theory of everything. It's sort of ideas about how things might be because in the end, science cannot really explain everything. And particularly, science can't give you meaning and purpose for your life. That's just not what it can do. Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates had already lived by the time the woman at the well met Jesus. And they could not explain everything. These seminal thinkers who shaped all of the philosophy of our day, they couldn't explain everything. She says when Messiah comes, he will explain everything. Messiah means the anointed one, the promised one. That's who she's talking about. And every 
Jew and Samaritan understands that. He's the Christ. John puts in parentheses, when he comes, he will explain everything. And indeed, Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah, and he does not object to the woman's notion that the Messiah will explain everything. He accepts her statement without objection. Having said the Messiah will explain everything, the next thing Jesus does is says, I'm the one. I'm the one. You may be curious. Why would people put their faith in a Jew who lived in the first century, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth? Does that really make any sense? Wasn't he a man? And the answer to that is yes, he's a man. He's fully man. But he's not merely man. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. The old covenant said that he would come. And there was this promise of hundreds of years duration throughout the prophets and the law that there was one who was to come. Even the word Messiah is used in the old covenant. So that in Psalm chapter 2, There's this poem where David writes, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his messias, against his anointed one, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, there's a rebellion going on in planet Earth. They don't really want to believe in a creator who is sovereign Lord of all. And so they are rebelling and they're going to throw away those bands and they're going to break those cords. And the psalmist says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Do you know God laughed in the Bible? He laughed in Psalm 2 when the kings of the earth set themselves against him. They are puny, tiny spots in his vast universe. And they shake their fists at the living God who made it all. And we're going to break your bands and cast away your cords, they said. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, the old Bible says. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And then it says, yet have I set my king, that's a Messiah, upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So now we have the anointed, Messias, we have the king in Zion, and we have the son of God. This day have I begotten thee. And God says to his son, ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. We believe that takes place through the church of Jesus Christ carrying the gospel to the Lesotho, Zimbabwe, Ghana, Europe, and all the corners of the earth that God is giving the earth to his son, Jesus, who rules over all. The scripture says, look, make peace with the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled just a little bit. And then it says, 
Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Who's him? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah, the anointed one. See, some of you are working on God and whether he exists. I only got to God through Jesus. Peter says, the apostle Peter, the fisherman, he says, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead. And your faith and hope are in God, but you got there through Jesus. That's what I'm telling you today. Jesus is the way you get there. He explains everything. You say, how'd this world come about? It came about through a compassionate God who cares about you, who made you as his special creation and his very own who made you to be in fellowship with him. We learned this because there's a man at the well named Jesus. And he's not only a man, he's the son of God and savior of the world. He is God's appointed one, the Messiah, the king that they're looking for, the prophet like Moses. This is him. This is him. And he explains everything. Why am I here? So that you might know him and through him know the God who made you. And where am I going? You're going to him. He is the culmination of all things. See, in the Bible, the end is a particular word. And the word itself has a dual meaning. Sometimes you see this word that is translated as the end, and it says mature or complete. The end of all things is at hand, the Bible says in some places. What does it mean? It's the telos. That's the Greek word. It's the fulfillment, the completion of all things. In other words, God is going to complete things in the end, and we are moving toward its fulfillment. What is its fulfillment? We're all headed toward Jesus, okay? Jesus is the culmination of all things and the summation of all things. John describes him in the Revelation as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The Scripture says that he holds all things together by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus, the man at the well, explains everything. And the woman is right. When the Messiah comes, he will explain everything. Do you want to locate yourself on the map of the universe? You feel like you're lost without directions to find your way? The man at the well is the man can help you with that. He explains everything. He can locate you in the map of history and the map of geography and on the map of the world and the map of the universe You can find your place in him and only in him. That's why the Bible describes him with that famous verse. In fact, his his self-description, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus that you find yourself, your past, your future, your forgiveness, and your new life. This is the living water that never runs dry. And once you drink this water, you never get thirsty again because you found the place that God prepared for you. Amen. It's great news. It's wonderful news. That's why the Bible calls it good news because humans feel lost. They feel like they're wandering around in the darkness and they don't really have a purpose, a reason for being or a direction for their life. He explains everything. Is that too much for you?
It's, it's God's plan and purpose that you might know Jesus and in him find who you are, why you are, and where you are going. He's God's anointed one. What do you substitute for Jesus? Lots of people have a substitute for Jesus. They got something else they like better. And if they get in a spiritual conversation, and we often get in spiritual conversations because everybody's kind of groping for their future, for who they are and what they're supposed to do. Had a woman just tell me recently, you know, I'm at this place where I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so we get in spiritual conversations. What do you substitute for Jesus? I mean, if you're not talking about Jesus, you got something. Maybe you're talking about morality. And you think if people made good decisions, if they practiced good morality, then they can find themselves on the map of the world and the map of the universe. And what you're really suggesting to them as you say that, as you focus on behavior and ethics and morality, and that's the solution to your problem, and this is what will get the living water going, is what you're suggesting to them. What you really want them is to look, do is look at you. I mean, it's the truth. You're doing pretty good. They're not doing quite so good. They'd be more like you. They can make it. So you've got this morality in your mind where you minimize the things that you fail about and maximize the things that other people fail about. And for you, that's the goal. That's what puts it together, your morality, your goodness. This ethical standard, this moral standard that you've got, that's what puts it together for you. And you see, you put your center in the middle. You put yourself in the center of your own universe. You know, you're the answer yourself. Maybe you've got a system. Maybe you have a philosophy, a structure. Maybe you've got a systematic theology. And when you come to the question of the universe, finding your place in the universe, it's this system you've got, this mental construct you've got that really helps you locate where you are and who you are. And you use this mental system. And you just want everybody to understand the way you think. And if they can understand the way you think, they'll get the answer to it all. And there are people like that. They think they found the secret knowledge. The Bible would describe them maybe, or church historians, as Gnostics. See, there's this secret knowledge. And if you get this, if you finally stumble into the system, well, then you got it together. See, now you know. And what that really does, once again, is it puts you in the middle. Because the person you're talking to doesn't know the system, but you do. So if they just start thinking like you, well, they'd be okay. Or if they start acting like you, the good moral person you are, they'd be okay. What's your substitute for Jesus? Your explanation for everything. What's in the middle? Maybe you point them to your church. Man, my church is the answer to everything. If you'll just go to my church... You will have the answer. Now, church is good. I mean, I've been in church a lot. All right? But that's not the answer to everything. Maybe you point them to the Holy Spirit instead of Jesus. Do you know the Scripture says the Holy Spirit came to bear witness, not of himself, but of Christ? The Holy Spirit's in this room to help you see Jesus. 
He's the living presence of God in this room, and he wants you to see Jesus. He's struggling to open your eyes so you can see Jesus. See, Jesus is the one. It's not a system. It's not a moral code. It's not some place you go. It is a person who is the answer to your need, and his name is Jesus. And it's just as simple as that. And there is no substitute for Jesus. And until you get to Jesus, you haven't brought the thirsty to the living water. You haven't brought the hungry to the food that satisfies. You've got to bring them to Jesus. Amen. He's the way. He's the answer. I myself, Jesus said to the woman, am he. And when that woman went to the town, she said, I met a man. Can you tell your story like that? I met someone who knew me on the inside and knew me inside out. And he's the one. He's God's anointed, and I recommend him to you. Make your way to Jesus. See, the townspeople then made their way toward Jesus. That's how John writes it. They made their way toward Jesus, and that's what you've got to do. You get in a conversation, you make steps toward Jesus. You get there as quick as you can. Bring them to Jesus. Tell them about Jesus, what he's done for you, just like Don did in the video. Tell them what he's done for you. Let them know about Jesus. Because even though you think that mentioning the name of Jesus is going to introduce a difficulty into the conversation, the truth of the matter is it introduces power and love into the conversation. Many of us quote 2 Timothy 1.7, which is the Apostles Paul letter to a young pastor. And he says, do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Do you know what the next words are? So, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's the next word. You look it up. It's in your Bible. God's given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Why? Because he's power, because he's love, and because he's a sound mind. You've never been more logical, more rational, more mentally helpful than when you've mentioned the name of Jesus in a conversation to a person who's thirsty. Because when you mention that name, you are bringing them to the place where they can get living water. There is salvation in no one else. It's our job. It's our joy. It's our wonderful opportunity and privilege. As Brent prayed, Lord, we don't know why you chose to do it this way, but you chose to use us. So, Lord, help us make our way to Jesus because when we get to him, we have found the water that never runs dry. I want you to find the New Testament and pass it around. They're at the end of the pew. There ought to be a copy for everybody in the room. If you can't find one where you are, get up and find one. If you've got extras, pass them around, okay? It's this little book, the New Testament. We have distributed hundreds of these New Testaments that we have marked. And today, I'm going to go through a little process 
for showing you how you can get to Jesus with your New Testament, with your Bible. And if you are somewhere with the Bible and somebody says, well, I don't really understand the Bible, you can use the Bible to bring that person to Jesus, and it's a very simple process. I want you to get a pen. There are pens in front of you in the pews, and I want us to mark these Bibles, okay? Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's three of them laying right here, and there's some more right over here. So uh, why don't we, Jason, you want to grab a couple of those and head down and make sure everybody's got a Bible. By the way, you can keep this Bible if you want to. It is a modern translation of the New Testament. It's got introductions to each one of the books and the authors that write them. It has a very important introduction to the whole New Testament. So it's a great book. We are going to use these after a little while in our prison ministry and among the children that are locked up at the juvenile detention center, okay? I want you to open this New Testament to this page right here, which is the first page, and I want to, you to write on there the Roman road or the plan of salvation, okay? And then put page 132. So put it on the front right there of that page. Write the Roman road or the plan of salvation or whatever you think explains what we're about to do. Page 132. Okay? Somebody's going to read this down the road. They're going to see your marks in this, and it's going to help them understand how to get to Jesus with the Bible. Now, if you'll turn to page 132, go to page 132. I want you to find verse 23 in the second column of page 132. Okay? It's chapter 3. It ought to say Romans 2 to 4 up there. You see 132? And there's a verse 23 in Romans chapter 3, and it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you see that? Okay, underline it. If you want to, put an asterisk beside it. I put a little arrow at the top pointing down to it so the person who gets there will know what to do. Okay? So mark verse 323. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's that mean? That means everybody in this room is a sinner. If I'm explaining that to somebody, I just say, you know, I'm a sinner. I realized it. Maybe you realize you're a sinner too, and they will probably agree with you. 99.9% of, of the people in the world will agree with you about this verse. All of sin and come short of the glory of God, that includes me, all right? Sinning is falling short of the glory of God. We've come up short. We've come up short morally. We've come up short spiritually. All right? Now, at the top of this page, I want you to put, go to page 134. So we're going to skip over a page. Go to page 134. Turn over to page 134, and in the middle of that second column, right before chapter 7, see that 7 in the second column? There's a verse. It's Romans 6.23. It says, All, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Underline Romans 6.23. Because everybody knows they're a sinner, but not everybody knows the wages of sin is death. And if you want to explain that, you can say death is separation. It's separation in this life from the things that we love and care about. It's physical death later on, and it's spiritual death, separation from God. The wages of sin is death, it is separation. So we mark that verse and put an asterisk beside it, put a little arrow going down to it, okay? So that's step two. All have sinned 
The wages of sin is death. Now, at the top of this page, the top of this column, page 134, put now page 133. Okay, so mark page 133 and go back one page to the middle of the column on page 133, and there is Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. God demonstrates his love for us. How? In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We just read that the wages of sin is death, and now we read that Christ died. So did Christ die for his own sin? No. Whose sin did he die for? For us, it says, right? Christ died for us. You see that? See the for us? Okay. So Jesus was God's perfect lamb, the sinless son of God. Never committed a sin. The scripture said he knew no sin. And he who knew no sin became sin in his death upon the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin, your lies, all the ugliness in your life, all the things you're ashamed of, all the things you wish had never happened, all the things you hope nobody finds out about. Jesus died for your sin in your place. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. All right? God demonstrated his love for us. Next time you think, I'm not sure God loves me, I've had trouble. Next time that occurs to you, think about the cross. God demonstrated his love for us while we were still, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Not while we got perfected, not after we got everything straightened out, not after we finally got our life out of the mess it was in, cleaned up our act. No, Christ died for us while we were sinners, going away from him, fighting his presence in our life, running as fast as we could, avoiding his Holy Spirit, saying, no, that can't be God speaking to me. God doesn't speak to people. All those excuses we made and all those uh, escape routes we built in our mind and heart, while we were still doing that, God loved us and he demonstrated it by Jesus' death upon the cross, okay? And so I have an asterisk beside that and an arrow pointing down. And now at the top of that column, I put now page 137. And here's how I'm going to show you to get to Jesus, okay? Page 137. Flip on over to page 137, and it's chapter 10. It's chapter 9 and 10 right up there, okay? This is where you got to get. If you're going to help somebody who's a sinner and who has earned the wages of death, the wages of sin is death. If you're going to help somebody who's lost and doesn't know their point on the map, doesn't know their place in the world, is groping for an answer, you've got to get here. And it's verse 9. You see it? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. God's going to rescue people from sin. He's going to save them. That's what the word save means. He's going to rescue them. How? Through their confession of Jesus as Lord. Through their believing in him and his death and resurrection. That's how he's going to save them. For it is, verse 10 is also underlined in my Bible, with the heart that a man believes 
and is justified, and it's with a mouth that he confesses or professes and is saved. And then verse 13 is a quote from the Old Covenant, from the Old Bible. Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. There's a Jew that wrote this long ago. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was true in the Old Covenant. It's true in the New Covenant too. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See that whoever, everyone? That includes you, my friend. That includes you. Underline verse 13, okay? Now close your Bible and look up here. Have you ever trusted Jesus as Savior? Have you ever said to God, Lord, with with the little faith I got and the feeble faith I got and limited understanding I have, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. I'm putting my faith in Him. I'm opening my life to Him, and today I am confessing Him as Lord. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever reached that moment of decision? Would you do it today? Bow with me, please. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, as far as you can remember, there's never been a place in time where, like the woman at the well, you met Jesus and realized he's the one. Would you today just say, Lord, I know I need you. My life's a mess, and I give it to you. I ask you for your forgiveness. I want you in my life. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and he rose from the dead and today I confess him as Lord. Would you pray that prayer? God sees your heart. He knows your heart. These are not magic words. It is the faith you place in him and his grace that is a gift that rescues you from your sin. Thank you, God for finding us lost ones looking for meaning and purpose knowing what a mess we made God thank you for loving us so much in such a way that you were willing to give not your best angel nor your worst but to give your only son to save us forgive us when we ever questioned your love Thank you that Jesus explains everything. And we can stand in this center, this place of truth and life and power and love. And we can stand right here in Him and know where we've come from, why we're here, who we are, and where we're headed. I pray for the one that's furthest from you today. By your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name.